the theme for the afternoon talk is from mindfulness to emptiness. In the years of the Buddha's teachings, from the age of uh, 35, when he first, uh, when he returned here, to the age of uh, 80, it's uh, reported that he gave numerous talks. Rough estimate is some 5,000. The intention with those talks as they are on paper is for us, as men and women of the earth, to see what is useful and insightful in them, not for itself, but in how they relate to our life today, which might be useful and valid. And one of the themes, regular themes, that runs through the body of the teachings is what's in the technical language called the Noble Eightfold Path. It is often referred to as eight links, right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi, right meditation. And the word right doesn't mean so much right and wrong, but it means what's a way of living which brings nobility and dignity, authenticity to our life, and therefore what do we need to explore to help bring about a conducive, supportive understanding, supportive and conducive intentions, speech, action, livelihood, mindfulness, meditation, etc. And therefore it's an invitation for us as men and women to take a good, clear, honest look at our life every area and feature of it and to find out and explore through our own experience what contributes to living dignity with integrity with a sense of authenticity and real sense inside of oneself that one is being as true to what one sees and is clear about as possible. And that really then is the primary focus of interest. All the teachings and all the practices and all the explorations is a kind of commentary on finding out what it lives, what it means to live a really fulfilled life. And if you and I are experiencing areas of our life which feel unfulfilled, incomplete, unsatisfactory, then those areas truly need some questioning, some inquiry, some meditating upon, because it will haunt us through our life. If there are areas, as I say, in your life and my life which feel inauthentic, or false, or unfulfilled, or unexamined, 
the shadows, so to speak, of that will permeate all sorts of areas. So Dharma teachings are a real encouragement for us to really look into every area of our life. Not only if we are more fulfilled as a human being, does it obviously contribute to our welfare, but we are less demanding on other people. We are less needy, less wanting, less pressure, less expectations, because we have realized understanding is inside, wisdom is inside, happiness is inside, clarity is within us. And that appreciation and acknowledgement and the kind of quiet independence that goes with it means that we want less from the world. And when you, know, when you and I are not concerned with security, when we want or demand less from the world, there is a natural sense of wishing to share. But if I feel missing, lacking, unfulfilled, incomplete, etc., not only do I place pressure on myself as a human being, but I keep having to pull on other people to help me feel fulfilled in some way or other. So these teachings, as I mentioned, are an indication or a pointer to find out what it means to lead a really fulfilled life. And a really fulfilled life, in the Buddhist teachings, is called Nirvana. That is what it's called. Since much else of what was said in the past and in the present is a kind of commentary, there is one particular discourse uh, of the Buddha which in the tradition has gained enormous respect. It's called the Satipatthana Discourse, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And what I would like to do is to explore that a little bit uh, this afternoon and indicate hopefully, somewhere along the line, hopefully, mindfulness and emptiness. The four, the Buddha's theme here is we as human beings have the capacity to be mindful, the capacity to be conscious. And then he asks and investigate what in life is really worth being mindful and conscious about. It's one thing to say be mindful and be conscious, but about what? And if we have got our priorities right, then it will contribute to a fulfilled life, and if we haven't, we'll always be searching for something more to try to fill us up. And so if we get the basic elements of life in a right harmony and balance, Everything else then can emerge out of it. And one important one, it should be fairly obvious to us, the first one is the whole relationship of mindfulness to this little bundle of activity that is called body. Because if we don't have clear, and I mean this, clear mindful contact with it, really connect with it, 
rather than living in a conducive relationship to bodily life, we will not see the body. We will only see the picture, the image, and the story that goes around it. But we can't feel it, we can't sense it, we can't touch upon it. And if you and I, as we know, we look into any uh, magazine shop and you look along the rows, I remember some years ago being in the railway station in Bonn in Germany. Apart from all the waste of good trees, there were shelves and shelves and shelves of magazines. And I did a rough count, counted up one row and then multiplied. One magazine, newspaper magazine shop, more than 2,000 publications were in there. And at least one or two hundred of them were intended for women. And it was a, you know, it's a railway, international railway station, so various countries, etc. And nearly all of them had on it a cover of a beautiful woman with beautiful clothes on. I travel around the world. I look at those pictures of those women on the cover magazines. I have to say, I have never in my life met a woman like that. I always wonder. <laughs> Where the hell are they? <laughs> and then the image which is generated of a beautiful woman, and it only takes a little bit of information to know they actually do not exist on this earth, and they don't exist in any other realm either. <laughs> they are simply not to be found. But the image is so potent and due, due I might say, to cameras, light, touching up, makeup, hairdressers, hairdressers, beauticians, expensive clothes, etc, etc. Even Christopher could look beautiful or all that lot. <laughs> So this whole of either gender, I might add. As I said to my daughter, I know it's a little grey, but um, I, I dyed it that the dark roots will be coming back. Anyway. Oh, you see. She said to me, dream on. Anyway. So we get the picture, we get the idea that that comes to us. But unfortunately, it creates the picture, the image. I am not. I am not beautiful. I am ugly. I am not this. I am not. And that picture, that, that image, inhibits the opportunity. And so whenever a person looks at herself, himself, through the mirror, there will always be parts which could be better. Always. And everybody has their bits. <laughs> bits. Whatever it might be. As though a centimetre here or there would make the whole difference to one's life if it was a bit... <laughs> I nearly said... 
I've got to be careful here, you know, gender. <laughs> I nearly said it was a bit longer, but I didn't want to upset the men. <laughs> it was a bit shorter, thinner, fatter, yeah, longer, taller, wider, da, 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 da. And all of this, we are bombarded with this world so strongly. Buddha says, mindfulness of body. See the body in the body. Keep reconnecting with it in its natural, elemental, organic form. Keep experiencing in that way. Get behind the outer body which is size, shape, weight, colour, all those appearances, and get to seeing the body in the body. See through that and connect with the body and experience the body just as it is again and again so that one can say with any way, hand on heart, one knows what it is to see the body in the body and one looks at all the pictures and images and whatever views about it in its outer and just sees this is a mental construction and if it's seen as that the understanding emerges this mental construction around the body is not who I am this, and use the words of the Buddha this mental construction around the body is not me not myself, not who I am. And my goodness, goodness me, if there is ever a time in the, in the history of this planet that inquiry and looking into the body is so vital and so necessary and urgent because of this bombardment with images. And as the, the, the Buddha says, how easy it is in the culture that we live in, and probably not much different two and a half thousand years ago, one becomes so easily attached to beauty, the ideas of it, to youth, to energy. Or as Brad the Pitts said, to quote the man, he said, the Buddhists say, I don't know where he got it from, but I like it, there are three types of Buddhists say there are three types of bad karma in the world. To be rich, famous, and beautiful or handsome. Three types of bad karma. I wouldn't disagree for a moment. So we want to look through, and therefore the mindfulness is applied clearly and directly as a practice to help see the body as the body and establish a relationship with it just as organic life and if you and I do this every day naturally I say naturally a lot of the imagery we have around the body a lot of the projections a lot of the comparing and the judging that goes on either with ourselves or with others will start to crumble start to collapse because we're not feeding it We're not feeding it. And as you and I have seen in just a space of less than one generation, the amount of surgery that's going on, women and men, 
trying to improve. And some women I know I've spoken to on this and said, Oh, Christopher, I was like this and like that, and then I had a facelift, and then I had my, I had my uh, eyes, uh, bags cut out of them, or a chin tuck, or a breast enlargement, or whatever. Now I feel better. Don't doubt. All it will mean is that the projections of the mind, the movement of the mind, it may, as it were, not go that place, one feels better about oneself, but it can't resolve the issue, and the mind will find somewhere else, something else, to land on to make a problem out. So the person may say, I feel much better about myself because of this operation, but it just moves and it goes somewhere else. It has to. And of course there are a number of uh, people, women and men, who put themselves under the knife, pay a lot of money for it, and even more problematic, feel in enormous regret afterwards for it. And they ask young women in their teens and twenties these days, and a huge percentage of them, as she was my daughter, she, she's lovely and beautiful and fantastic, and I said to her, would you go to the surgeon? She says, oh yeah, Dad. If I could afford it, there are bits here I'd have done. And not, oh. But it's just been absorbed into the, this is... That now they're talking in such a way that we, whoever we are, can start thinking, I need this done, I need that done. Somehow or other, mindfulness of seeing body in the body real dedication to it. Mindfulness of breathing keeps us in touch with the body. Moving up mindfulness through various parts of the body keeps, in, keeps us in touch with it. Care and attention to uh, the posture as with uh, the morning um, instructions, a kind of firm, upright sitting, keeps us centered. Gives a feeling in the being of being upright. It's not only the posture, there's a certain kind of inner attitude which really can get established just because we say, be with the posture. You and I know when we're feeling a bit low, mind state is a bit heavy, the body itself starts to adjust to the state of mind. Slump, body collapse, feeling low, feeling down, feeling better. Blanket. <laughs> Over. The lower, you notice, the further it moves up the body. Feeling really down and feeling really low, eventually it's over the top of the head. Can't face the world, can't face oneself. Body has to get covered. Sometimes I notice where it can be a little chilly, a little cold. And sometimes people are hugely overdressed. Wrapping the body up and up. Notice these sometimes with inquiries, not so much here. But the <coughs> body gets wrapped up more and more. And sometimes in the inquiry sessions, I might, or in a small group or a one-to-one, -one, I might start asking some, some questions, some direct questions. And the person starts stripping off. I mean, not totally, I am. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> And they start to get hot and warm. 
and the emotion and the passion and the feelings begin to flow and the blankets are coming off and the hat's coming off. <laughs> so before the person was feeling cold, but really it's the emotions were cold. And then the body feels the chill, we wrap up more little questions, little looking at, few points, and suddenly one starts unraveling the clothes. So the body can be an extraordinary pointer to telling us about our emotional life. Telling us about if our heart is flowing easily and fluidly. Heart, mind and body are all three interacting events. Sometimes people say with the bodily uh, life, I find in myself that I get tense, I get restless, there's a lot of movement and activity which is going on uh, physically. And then the challenge is for us, can I learn to stay steady and cool and not move the body? And as the uh, Buddhist world has said for the last couple of thousand years, sometimes in our stillness to move a little finger is, it's a lovely one-liner, to disturb the world of 10,000 things. Sometimes it's to be sit still and we just sit it. We just move a little finger or we pull a shoulder up and there's something inside said that wasn't necessary. Just disturbed the world of 10,000 things. All this belongs to mindfulness of the body to establish a clear relationship with it which is conducive to our being in the world which takes out anguish, pain, projections, fantasy and suffering which we have planted because of a, a non-conducive, non-helpful view to looking at the body. We want to be able to have a clear relationship with it that the body does not cause us any stress whatsoever. Because we've seen it. We've established with it. Maybe pain coming out of the body. I remember one person on the retreat in Gaya some years ago, I had mentioned that the Buddha had said, in one of his discourses, he was experiencing back pain. This person on the retreat said that he was writing a book about back pain because so many people take time off from work because of back pain. So he asked me to find where the passage was and I went, oh dear, there. So then I asked a Pali friend of mine in the United States. He then emailed me where the place was quoted where the Buddhists referred to the back pain that he experienced. This person wrote the book and the title of the book was Even the Buddha Had Back Pain. <laughs> Rather nice. So sometimes one can be the Buddha of the Buddhas. Pain can be experienced in the body. It's seen for what it is. There's no problem for the mind. This is called wisdom. Experience in the body, mindfulness of clear connection with the body, 
will take out the pain, sorry, the uh, projections, uh, fears, worries, anxieties, because one's really connected with the body. And a massive amount of dissolution can take place. It might require from us some, it will require, some real honesty about it. Some people, I like it, some people, just on the last retreat, I don't know if the person's uh, uh, here or not, she said to me, she hadn't looked in the mirror for several days, then after about a week of being on the retreat, she looked in the mirror and burst into tears. She said she noticed a few spots <laughs> and she was so shocked at what she saw. Sometimes we hardly know what's accumulating. So of course as soon as she said that, I'm looking at the face of the way that I might I'm getting a bit old, I admit, but it was a bit of a job to spot them, if I may say. So sometimes we look at something there's a tendency there, we pick it out, the intention of picks it out, it magnifies it, and one bursts into tears. Is, is there anybody in this world who doesn't have any spots? Anybody in this world who couldn't think of something to improve somewhere? So we turn to see it for itself. The Buddha follows this, mindful, this with the feeling life and with the states of mind, uh, with the Dharma. And I'd just like to touch on the feeling life a little bit uh, here with you. It would be a rare day in giving Dharma teachings that I don't hear reports and accounts, obviously, of what people are feeling and just how important the emotional life is. And one of the unfortunate things which happens for the Dharma Wallers and for, for the meditators is some kind of view that I shouldn't experience unpleasant feelings. There is not a single person on this planet who has ever lived, who has been able to live without the arising of unpleasant feelings. It's in the human experience and in the human field. The Buddha of the Buddhas of the Buddha of the Buddhas experiences unpleasant feeling. The tendency is from unpleasant feeling something goes on top of it and it starts to generate some kind of reaction and aversion. Think of an experience today. Any kind of experience today where you've had some unpleasant feeling, whatever it's, whatever it's about, has from the unpleasant feeling it developed itself into some aversion. Can one get back 
just to the bare feeling itself and live with it live with it as if it was never going to go away just live with it feel it and sometimes we have an unpleasant feeling that is going on in the being physical emotional, mental and one really feels it and I think what's the fuss all about? what's the fuss all about? sometimes a person comes all the different levels here how deep and extraordinary our inner life is and the emotional life is one is in a pressurized cooker of a situation heart, mind and body seem to be all over the place a great deal of reactivity is going on one feels one's not coping, one's full of doubt having a struggle with it all feeling rather negative, blame, whatever it's going on and somewhere in the midst of all of this volcanic eruption that's going on there's a voice deep down saying doesn't really matter where did that one come from? <laughs> where did that one come from? it's like that all these levels are going on in the upper regions huge fuss running to everybody we can to tell our hard up story whatever the drama, the trauma, whatever it is and sometimes in the very depth of the being there is a knowing it's not that important the description which we are giving the commentary which is taking place sounds like wow this is one hell of a major life crisis <laughs> that I'm really in a state of transition uh, this is a big transition we're always in transition <laughs> but some we want to magnify some I mean this is a time of big transition for me oh, every moment a moment of some kind of transition but as I say to get back deep down no matter what the event there can be a knowing that it's not that major for us what is it that's, as it were, in here, somewhere, in the being which has the potential for some space around it? One can be crying and deep down one knows it's just emotions getting released and that's all it is. And why shouldn't our tears run? Why shouldn't the feeling element convert itself from time to time into the water element? Why not? It's an extraordinary thing. I always, I'm always amazed when I when see it. When seeing something, but um, tear, tears come, a tears of joy, a tear of uh, sorrow, whatever. Think, God, how is it that the emotion flowed up through the body, past the throat, up through the face, and, and now there's some little globlets of tears? How did that? transformative process go on in one just 
mindful of it and watching wow it's incredible you forget the story because it's so fascinating what, what <laughs> all right so the mindfulness the application of attention to feelings helps us to watch and observe this process which is going on the ability to watch and explore this process that's going on and the insights which come with it help us to give a feeling of again authenticity of being connected with and once again less pressure Sometimes the inner life, in its flowing through the being, it is also to watch what kind of state of mind we have and how it functions and operates through the physical life. And then that may show itself in the movement, as we did in the monastery, from the inner body, up through the shoulder, down through. What comes out of our hands tells us a lot about what's going on inside. What comes through the hands and into the world? Greed, creativity, anger, generosity, confusion, fear, fearlessness, often makes a journey from the inner out and showing itself right out through the, the way we use the hands what we write, what we give, what we take, what we express, what we express. And in the monastery, day in and day out, it was like the first commandment in our monastery, Moses, eat your heart out, we all obeyed the Lord. This, it was the most bizarre phenomenon to watch. Up and down we went. You got a hundred monks and nuns just moving their hand like this, up, down, up, down, down, down. Feeling this in the hand, sensations, vibrations in the hand. Up, up, hour after hour. People would come and never seen it. It is look it is look it is weird. So whenever one mentioned one's teacher's name, Ajahn Damodaro, in Thailand. Always a response, ah yeah. <laughs> that's the one, yeah, that's the one. But the intention behind the movement was for a human being as practitioners to get to understand that what travels from the depth moves through the body and often moves out through the hand. And we, the exploration is to follow this path through. So that what's coming out of the hand in various ways and expressions is telling us something about what's inside of ourselves. Therefore we learn to watch the hand. And it was extraordinary in the very process of doing that day in and day out. It brought incredible attention to eating. It brought in incredible attention to how we move the hand when we were talking. It brought incredible attention to noticing 
when we're communicating how others are moving their parts of the body and what that might be showing and, uh, and indicating just because one realizes there's a deep link and therefore where there's a link from depth to feelings, to thoughts, to intentions, to movement, to hand, into the world that link is really worth following. Why? Because that's who we are. That's where our identity is in, in that kind of movement. And so though these things sometimes look a little uh, odd, but the intention is for wisdom. So what's, I haven't quite forgotten, what's the relationship of mindfulness and empty, <laughs> emptiness? And I know you, old yogi wallers are waiting around for this bit of the talk. <laughs> Almost feel it, come on Christopher, get on with it. <laughs> There's mindfulness, or awareness, or consciousness. And the consciousness turns and applies itself to an object. The object of interest or attention can be one thing or the other. The object of the attention seems to be something of interest. The object of attention can be, like I just said, the physical. It's an object of attention which comes into my mindfulness, which I look at and I want to see if the relationship of my mind or my states of mind is having some healthy or unhealthy influence on the body. As I gave in a few examples. Sometimes my attention and interest of the mindfulness, the application of the mindfulness, goes directly to the emotions, to the feelings. And, that's, and then my interest is all in that area. How I'm feeling, what these feelings are about, how deep are these feelings. Are they, if the feelings are pleasant, is the pleasant feeling feeding desire, wanting, pursuit of, and more pleasure and fantasy? have a pleasant feeling with another person, with myself, with a situation, am I able to appreciate just the pleasant feeling and to watch and notice if there's anything unhealthy about it through identification with it that starts to lead to some compulsive or compelling activity, which I'll regret later. Because it started off with a pleasant feeling. Whatever it might be pleasant feeling from the choice to have a cigarette it becomes cancer <coughs> pleasant feeling of making some money becomes an obsession the pleasant feeling of uh, gaining a position becomes a huge power ego trip starts off with a pleasant feeling and the consequences of it is painful for oneself and others it starts off with something pleasant. I want to watch that movement. It starts off something with um, something unpleasant, an unpleasant feeling. I haven't learned how to stay with an unpleasant feeling, so I start investing into it. So from the unpleasant feeling, 
it becomes negative then it becomes blame resentment anger hostility violence war acts of terror it has its background and its history in the sustaining of an unpleasant feeling it has to it's in there we want to get to such a subtlety that we can really learn as a human being to be deeply subtle to see this is a pleasant feeling this is an unpleasant and sometimes the feeling is in between I can't really say it's pleasant I can't really say it's unpleasant and it's somewhere in between and the Buddha's warning about these feelings in between is when it's a kind of neutral feeling I don't feel particularly pleasant today I don't feel particularly unpleasant but that feeling how easily we can get stuck in it kind of neutral kind of out of touch with our feelings and in that it reinforces a blind spot and we stay stuck in that place not pleasant, not unpleasant and eventually it becomes increasingly more unpleasant and difficult so a human being exploring in the depths of the inner life notices what is pleasant, notices what is unpleasant and is very clear what am I making of it what am I doing with it people who get attached in the Dharma to the pleasant may experience, and this is an important point, we had some discussion on it today in our small group people who identify with the pleasant constantly want things to be nice and pleasant and people who want to stay heartfelt and warm and have that nice continuity of a pleasant sensation may well sacrifice their cri critical faculties can't speak up anymore they can't voice criticism they can't express concern about injustice or violence or, or uh, uh, manipulation or whatever it might be we just want to stay in the nice pleasant heartfelt realm of just being pleasant human beings and then they will go and find nice teachers who are kind of soft and nice all the time to meet in with the role model that the mind has got just wanting to stay in a nice pleasant realm and they're afraid and it is a fear they're afraid to be critical because if they're critical they're afraid that they will sound judgmental and haven't realized haven't understood the difference between the critical voice which is so important and necessary in this world which the Buddha advocates very strongly and never hesitated to use himself that person feels that it's being judgmental So those people who have identified with the pleasant, please look at it. Life isn't pleasant. It's what it is. Some pleasant comes into it and some pleasant goes out of it. But trying to stay pleasant, pleasant. And that's why one's got to be careful about all these loving-kindness meditations. They're not my cup of tea, most of you know. <laughs> but it could be just feeding into the idea want things to be pleasant all the time and that could block and stop investigation, real inquiry 
ruthless examination into issues of, of, of life. Because one wants to keep in the pleasant realm all the time. There are those with the unpleasant identify with that. I hope you and I are really careful about that as well. And the unpleasant and the identification with that and the build-up of the self around it can show itself in the tone of voice, constantly being negative, finding fault, just seeing what's wrong, nothing's ever right, nothing's ever good enough. There's unpleasant feeling, self has identified with it, and it keeps viewing all of what's going on around or inside of oneself through the distortion of the unpleasant. In its true nature, life isn't unpleasant either. But we can get into such a habit, negative, fault-finding, being cynical, nothing works, nothing is right, nothing's good enough, and we live through the distortion of that because we haven't brought mindfulness and haven't applied it to looking carefully and deeply at our identification with unpleasant feelings and viewing that as a means to look at the world. World meaning others and ourselves. And it's an enormous challenge to touch the depth and to look at what I say as a human being and what I write. How much is it fueled by identification with the pleasant or the unpleasant or somewhere in between? This is why the Buddha is constantly saying, go from gross to subtle, go deep, look carefully, look carefully. And when we look carefully and we explore this, it, what happens to us inwardly, I feel, is that we, our expressions, there's a kind of inner awareness that goes on, which is willing to say, well this is what the feeling is in this moment. And if we're repeating it, pleasant or unpleasant, it starts to stand out for us. We know that if we're repeating something pleasant, 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 trying to have it nice and comfortable, or unpleasant, unpleasant, and it's just finding fault all the time, there'll be such an application of the mindfulness, we'll know we're not talking about anything except the state of our own mind. Simply through the repetition. We're not talking about the situation, we're not talking about the environment, we're not talking about others. The habit will tell us, my God, it's just me and my negativity coming out. Me and my wanting to have everything nice all the time coming out. The habit is the telling point for us. Anyway, I still haven't forgotten emptiness. <laughs> Don't go away. <laughs> In the looking, Mindfulness, Buddha says, there are four applications of mindfulness for a person wishing to realize a fulfilled life. Mindfulness of the body, we talked about. Mindfulness of the feelings, we talked about. Mindfulness of the states of mind, all that arises. And the mindfulness of the Dharma. And Dharma, many aspects of this, but Everything, object of interest, is a dharma. 
my eyes open, I look around, and dharma, 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 dharma. Sometimes drama, 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 yes, but dharma, 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 mostly, we hope. So we live in the ocean of dharma. We rest in the ocean of dharma. Ultimate truth is dharma. Conventional truth is dharma. Illusory illusions are dharma. We live in this great huge field of dharma. And it's unshakably such. It cannot dissolve. Despite all the changes. And therefore, objects of interest in the moment of the object of interest or the application of, ma- of mindfulness, the moment that we give our attention to, that's our dharma for the moment. Understand? We're looking at the body, that's the dharma for the moment. Look at the feelings, that's the, da- the dharma for the moment. Look at the states of mind, that's the dharma for the moment. Look at sights, sounds, smells, tastes and touch. That's the objects. That's the dharma for the moment. The great pity for human beings, as I just said, Dharma becomes drama. It's not drama. It's dharma. It's the object of the mindfulness. The mindfulness has applied its attention, so to speak, to something. The mindfulness to apply its attention to something means that the mindfulness is not it. Mindfulness is not the body. The body comes in to that which is absence of. Understand you following? Have I completely lost you? There's the body. Body comes to mindfulness. The mindfulness is the absence of the body. And it comes into the mindfulness, right? Feelings in emotional life come into the mindfulness. Sometimes by intention, I intend to look at what these subtle feelings are. Sometimes, not by intention, the force of the feelings come to me. don't have any choice about it, we were discussing this in the inquiry last night. They just come to me. So sometimes they seem to have choice or intention, sometimes they're right. So the mindfulness is the absence of feelings and emotions, which meet. In their absence, feelings and emotions can enter. The states of mind allow the state of mind to come and be experienced or be known in the mindfulness, which means the mindfulness is the absence of the states of mind. The objects called sight, sound, smells, tastes and touch come in to the mindfulness because the mindfulness is not a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste or a touch. What does that tell us? And I can't know a mindfulness unless I have an object which goes into it. The mindfulness is the absence of (coughs) emptiness. Mindfulness is pure, pure, unadulterated emptiness. Something. Because it's not body. It's not feelings and emotions. It's not thoughts and states of mind. It's not sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. It's none of the familiar and the known. Nor the familiar and the known keeps entering into something which is not that. 
which we put the label on, we call mindfulness. But we are so foolish as human beings that we have made, in our idea, mindfulness something. We've got the idea, mindfulness is something. And once we have the idea that mindfulness is something, then we've got memory and we compare. More mindful, less mindful, my mindfulness is improving, it's getting better, it's getting worse, it's going completely downhill, or <laughs> uh, whatever. We have all these varieties of books of mindfulness, I confess, I've written one of them. And all, all that, we make mindfulness to be something. It's not anything. Can you show it to me? Can it be revealed anywhere? Can we spot it? Can we see it? Can we hold it? Can we weigh it? Can we carry it? So perhaps the exploration of the object called body, feeling, states of mind and dharma of course it's extraordinarily significant but the mindfulness which is none of that surely has to be more significant. The very nature of mindfulness is its emptiness. And its very extraordinary emptiness makes the revelation of everything possible. This is quite something. It's quite something. But mindfulness makes everything revealable. And as someone commented in the uh, guy, how extraordinary it is that we so-called, I don't think we are, but so-called small human beings can walk out in the night and look up and be mindful of the great heavens millions of miles away. How can we call ourselves small when we have that ability? Through the mindfulness, using the vehicle of the eye, this physical eye, to see something. That's greatness. And all that rests in the mindfulness. We think we're tiny little creatures. Oh, what a stupid perception. <coughs> we're extraordinary creatures. With, we, because we can realise, through the mindfulness, realising the emptiness of it, and the beauty of emptiness, that it makes all things possible. You should remember this little, 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 little thing here. Whoa! May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings love emptiness. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes.